Hey everyone, happy Easter. Just wanted to give you a heads up that this episode makes brief mention of sexual assault, so do with that information what you will. Blessed Easter to all of you, and enjoy the show. Seth, happy Easter to you. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Wow, this is the most formal liturgical opening that we've had, (laughs) but I'm here for it. It has been... Oh, a long time coming. I've really been looking forward to Easter this year. Just excited for the tonal shift. It feels like it's been Lent for longer than just Lent. You know what else I'm excited about? Is asking you a very special question. What would you do in this particular situation? How would you rather be remembered? Would you rather be remembered as being faster than me or being more generally beloved than me? (laughs) Um, I'm disappointed I have to pick, but (laughs) probably faster. (laughs) That's that's just like my own ego because I ran track when I was in high school. So that's years ago, but like, I feel like I can't give up that claim. So I'm going to go with faster. I would actually go with being faster as well, because I feel like that's surprising. Like, when you look at our physical statures, if I was the faster one, (laughs) that would be the most shocking. But I don't know if there's any way to be more beloved than Seth Roseman. I mean, we could both just be really beloved. That's true. And really slow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Toward a slow, but beloved. Yeah. That sounds like a good goal for us. Well, Seth, slow or fast, however you feel, how about you go ahead and read our Easter passage for us today? I would love that. This is John chapter 20 from the Common English Bible. Early in the morning of the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple left to go to the tomb. They were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and was the first to arrive at the tomb. Bending down to take a look, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he didn't go in. Following him, Simon Peter entered the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there. He also saw the face cloth that had been on Jesus' head. It wasn't with the other clothes, but was folded up in its own place. Then the other disciple, the one who arrived at the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They didn't yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Well, thanks for reading those verses for us, Seth. And I'm curious to know, this Easter passage that I'm sure you've heard many times before, was there anything that caught your eye as you read through it this time, or caught your attention? I don't know how many times I've heard this passage. I think it's a lot. But I don't know if I, if I ever thought about what the significance is of the face cloth that's not with the other clothes, but was folded up in its own place. 
Like, that seems like a really specific detail for me not to remember and to know absolutely nothing about. Yeah, honestly, that stood out to me, too, as you were reading it. it was just, you know, all these details in here that feel like with more context and knowledge, they would have a lot more meaning. But in this compilation, they just seem really random and <laughs> and stitched together. <laughs> But it's it's so interesting to think about, you know, Jesus, you know, did he like get up out of the body cloths first and then realize, oh, I still got this thing on my face and like take it off and <laughs> fold it up nicely? Or was it like, you know, kind of like he was he had been napping for a long time and like took off his face mask first, <laughs> <laughs> set it aside and then got up and and left. <laughs> Yeah, it's such an interesting little detail. I always think it's those that fill in a story that make it just seem much more real and much more believable. Like when you read a novel, it's the little details, I think, that that make you engrossed, that make you get lost in the story. I think the same might be true here. Like it's these little details that we get that help it just seem even more real. But the other thing I noticed is the repetition so the disciple whom Jesus loved gets the, to the tomb. and He sees the linen clothes lying there, but he doesn't go in. And then following him, Simon Peter enters the tomb, and he sees the linen clothes lying there. I don't know if I ever realized the way that those details are repeated, like one after the other. Even though the disciple whom Jesus loved is faster, we still get this repetition of who goes into the tomb first, and who sees the linens first, and da 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 thought that was that was interesting too yeah it almost felt like those details gave a measure of chaos to the the story too it's just like this this one goes this far and as we we so love and appreciate and as it inspired the question there are several implications here that john is faster than peter presuming john is the disciple who jesus loves as is typically understood in john's gospel but there's also something here, Seth, that's like this, the chaos of this moment, I think contributes to what feels like a central thread for all of John chapter 20. So we read kind of the start of the third day, so to speak, the start of Easter Sunday, as we call it today, where Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, see that it is opened and that Jesus's body is gone. She goes and tells the disciples about it. And Peter, and again, presumably John, rush to see what's happened. And we learn from the passages moving forward that this really didn't resonate with them. Hmm. So Mary is still True. there weeping by the tomb, and she has a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. She then goes to tell the disciples again, and they still don't believe her. They still are fearful. And it's only when Jesus comes to the disciples himself in his resurrected form that the scripture says they were filled with joy because they finally got it. (laughs) And then at the end of this chapter, Thomas, who wasn't with them when Jesus showed up, he didn't believe. And so Jesus appears again, invites him to put his hands in his wounds and say, I'm here. And causes him to believe and it ends with this statement towards the end of the chapter jesus essentially asks do you only believe because you've seen blessed are those 
who have not seen and still believe. And so there's this thread here when you remind yourself that these gospels were written to a community. Like imagine that blessing that that, that mm. would have felt in the mm. story. It's like all these people receiving this word of encouragement that Jesus says, if you didn't get the chance to put your hands in my wounds and believe in me, that's the blessing. Like that is that is where my favor rests. Hmm. But it's just really interesting, the dynamic here of the story really not sticking, the reality, not just the story, the reality of the situation not sticking with the disciples until they themselves see. Hmm. Yeah. It is almost as if the theme of the chapter is centered on not believing the witnesses until the non-believers become witnesses themselves. (laughs) (laughs) I think your point about the community that receives this is so important. Like, this is much later. It's difficult to date John's gospel, but it's at least 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus' death. So there's plenty of people who who are starting to believe or who have asked or who are asking questions about this Jesus person. But of course they haven't seen him. Maybe somebody caught a glimpse of him like one time, right? While he's walking down the street, but they never saw him in his resurrected glory. And they're asking questions about like, what does this mean for me? I'm conflating this a little bit with Paul, I think, but I'm even wondering whether there's like a hierarchy of people who are following Jesus. It's like people who have seen Jesus are like a little bit higher. Mm. They're like, oh, look, I saw Jesus, you know. I, And then there's like the people who followed him later. And I wonder sometimes if John isn't writing to try and correct some of that. Like, hey. Yeah. What's actually a miracle is that these people believed without ever seeing the central point here for me that's really sticking comes alongside this theme of not believing the witnesses. And I saw something recently that I call him our friend. I don't know if he even remembers who, who we are, but I'll call him <laughs> our friend, Scott Evans. He's the chaplain at the University College of Dublin in Ireland. He spoke and led facilitated opportunities with groups that we were a part of in college I just really have a lot of respect for him as a speaker, a leader, someone who has really learned to engage the scripture in a meaningful way in an environment in Ireland that's, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, like either apathetic or hostile towards, (laughs) towards religion in a lot of ways. But Scott Evans shared something I saw on his social media that he first preached four years ago about the differences in response to how we treat the disciples for not believing Mary versus how we treat Thomas for not believing the disciples. Hmm. What do we call Thomas? His n- <laughs> We call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas. <laughs> for 2,000 years. Yeah, <laughs> he literally ended up having the same opportunity that it took the disciples to believe that Jesus was resurrected and yet you still have mary who is the first to see the first to proclaim i would contend the first to preach the good news 
of Christ's resurrection, even though in the moment she was concerned and confused about what was happening. But she made the news public. She made it known. She proclaimed it. And when she is not believed, when the response is instead, let's check, which sounds a little bit like the need to put your hands in the wounds, um, the disciples are seen as being reasonable, (laughs) being, I don't know, checking themselves to make sure, checking their sources, so to speak. And I guess my, my general question that comes from that, Seth, you know, Easter is about God's good news. You know, the idea of resurrection is central to our understanding of what God is up to in the world. Making things that were dead and broken and unjust alive and whole and full and overflowing with God's justice. But what does who we trust say about how we understand God's good news. To be clear, I don't necessarily think this is an issue of the scripture itself. I think this is an issue of interpretation and the way that we've told this story, the way the scripture has become embodied in our contexts. That we interpret the response of the disciple who didn't believe the men who told him differently than we do the response of all the disciples who didn't believe the woman who told them. Thinking about our context now, what does who we trust say about how we understand God's good news? I love this question. I'm thinking just first of all about the role and position of women at the time. The way that women are are looked down on. The way that you know men are seen as more authoritative. I just wonder, like, what parallels that has today. I think there are some there are some leaps that we can make, but I think the one leap we don't have to make is that we can still say that about women today. That society often asks questions about things that women say, that it doesn't ask about things that men claim. We see this all the time when women come forward that they've been sexually assaulted or worse. And the first thing that happens is people start asking questions of the woman. Well, what happened? What were you wearing? What did you do? Did you, did you somehow invite this on yourself? There's somehow a hesitancy to believe women in order to protect men. So I think that's a leap that we don't have to make. But I also think that when we do believe women, but also when we believe anyone who's just kind of been been put down and pushed aside and cast out, when we believe anyone like that, anybody who's not in positions of power, just tells us that their testimony is still worth trusting. Mm. Just like this God who resurrected from the dead kind of unbelievably is worth trusting. It's like a decentering, I guess, is the way I'm thinking about it. It's like instead of looking at like who's 
who's powerful and believing them. But like looking at the margins, looking at this crucified Jew from Palestine, believing him and in what he says, and also believing people who have been marginalized too. Hmm. Okay, I kind of felt like I went on there for a little. No, too that's long. good. So I, I apologize. That's. I mean, that's definitely what I've been thinking about too. And you brought up something important, Seth. Like the idea of resurrection is a real power move. At least, and yeah. let me let me let me it is. give an explanatory comma on that one. Like <laughs> in a setting like Rome, it is often the assumption that when something becomes too much of a nuisance or too much of a threat, Rome executes, and it's done. It is this claim that in this context, Rome has the final say. And we have appropriately drawn conclusions to death as a whole, right? That, you know, in our world, death has the final say. And resurrection tells us something different. Well, resurrection also tells us something different about the powers and the principalities in this Mm. world. And as you said, for a marginalized Jew from Palestine to without lifting a finger and in fact by having his hands pierced totally undermine the ultimate threat that Rome had to leverage against the people. It can communicate that a a lot of other things are going to be turning on their heads too. And I think this, this text that we read shows us that. That as you said... Like it happens so often throughout the Gospels. The people who in that time should not even be mentioned in the story are becoming main characters. Jesus doesn't turn the world upside down. It's almost like he's turning a sock inside out. <laughs> that what, I like that. What was once close to the center has now been pushed out. The power of Rome, the threat of execution, the threat of imperial occupation. It's being pushed out in the name of a God who decides to start telling this story through a woman who is just trying to do her duty to tend to a dead body of a person she loved and learned from. And this great reversal begins to open our eyes to a lot. And I think, to come back to that question that prompted all this, I think a lot of times our trust reflects more of that Roman way of thinking. Where we we look to the institutions, we look to the people with power for answers and solutions. And I'm not saying that we need to look elsewhere for solutions. I'm saying that solutions aren't necessarily the end-all be-all. That by looking and being among the margins, we actually might start to embody the type of person and the type of community that God wants us to be. I really appreciate your point about solutions not being the ultimate goal. I think I find myself like just falling into that kind of trap 
like I see something wrong or someone hurting and the first thing I want to do is like well what can I do to relieve it how can I how can I help fix it but it seems like what's actually maybe a more faithful question is to ask how can I accompany them how can I be with them and maybe even the bigger question that that I can ask that's about fixing it isn't just how can I fix this one individual instance but like in what way has this person been forgotten how can I help turn the sock inside out like he said and participate in Jesus mission that way by taking those people who are on the outside who are forgotten and lost disregarded and pulling them into the center again so it's not to say that my my innate desire to fix it is all wrong but that maybe i need to accompany and then i need to ask bigger questions about what fixing it really looks like one of the pieces of i I don't even know it's like i want to call it a piece of information but it's something so much more than that that i've learned about like pastoral care and counseling over the years and strangely enough, the other place that I've heard this has been in spaces around like consulting too, like whether it's in an educational context or otherwise, or a church context. Mm-hmm. The best people who embody those roles know that they don't have the answers. They know and are committed to the fact that the people with whom they are going to start working, they have the answers. They just haven't found them yet. Hmm. And I think that's so often a trademark of whiteness, honestly, is coming in and saying, oh, well, look at all that we've accomplished over centuries. Obviously, I can figure out the best thing to do in this situation, which seems trivial compared to all that. But in actuality... That's totally it. Sorry. No, it's, it's true. That's totally it. And then, like, you look at what we've accomplished, and you're like, I don't really know if that's all that great, but okay. Well, I mean, but we're continuing the trend of all that we've accomplished has been at asserting ourselves at the expense of others. And that's still, like, hopefully to a less colonial and imperialistic extent. Like, that's still, though, it's the mentality that pervades us when we say, oh, this person has a problem. I I know I can fix it, even though I have absolutely no qualification to do so oh this person is struggling let me be a voice for them because they're voiceless no yeah exactly (laughs) that's not it stop asking about how you can make your voice louder and start thinking about why aren't we listening to those voices in the first place why aren't we listening to mary magdalene who saw with her own eyes what all these disciples came to believe why do we have to keep asking ah I want to make sure what is it about listening to the vulnerable, the hurting that somehow prompts in us the thought that we know better. This doesn't feel like a good news Easter kind of uplift and, you know, fluffy bunny kind of sermon, but it honestly feels like the message we need right now. Yeah, it does. Yeah. If we can listen to those, those voices that are on the margins if we can be quiet long enough as loud privileged 
white men. If we can be quiet long enough to let those voices speak and sing. I just I wonder if we can just have more Easters, if I can say it that way. If there can be more resurrections. Mm. I've never really thought about what gets in the way of resurrection. And it's a hard pill to swallow to think it might be me. Yeah, I agree. But despite what a lot of people want to tell you these days, it's okay to feel challenged based on your identity. Because if if Easter is, as, we're, as we've already called it, a power move, then there's some other things about Easter that need to shake up how we're going about our lives. And for a long time, for generations, long before either of us were even a thought, <laughs> women and black women in particular have led the charge in screaming about what is wrong, but the ways that our world casts people aside. And just because folks like you and me might be having our eyes opened to these struggles for the first time now doesn't mean they're new struggles. A decentering Easter requires us to recognize the people who are telling us the truth. And that's why I think this question about who we trust is so connected to how we understand the gospel. Because if we believe that God's good news has to do with liberation for the oppressed, with relief for the poor, with sight for those who cannot see, then it sure makes sense to me that those are the places, those are the communities where we need to pay the most attention to see where those other resurrections might be springing up. Oh man. I don't even know what else to say. Well, how about I pray for us? That seems like the next logical step. <laughs> Let's pray. God of Mary Magdalene, from the moment of Christ's resurrection, you have given women the headlines and stories of your good news. Forgive us this Easter for not looking for word and confirmation of the risen Christ among the most vulnerable mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world this Easter Sunday. I pray in the name of the risen one, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and happy Easter. We'll be back next week with more Easter-related content. But until then, thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it. I feel like I was just dancing around heresy. No, but I'm committing. I'm. I'll commit. Right. I'll commit with you. And maybe I'm more apt to do that now that I'm on the, on the other <laughs> side of my ordination interviews you... compared to you. But, uh, but I think I think you're right.